Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. As we continue today in our series in Luke, we are getting so close to the end. We will not finish this year. We will come up next year and finish off, but we are going to finish off chapter 23, verses 50 through 56, as we consider that Jesus is buried quickly and quietly. Death. It's final. It's the end of the story. Benjamin Franklin wrote once, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain. Now, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. Let's see what happens here. All right. Except death and taxes. We all know that, right? Death and taxes. You cannot escape those things. The only one thing left after one dies is the funeral. Now, there are many different types of funerals and memorials. I think memorials are probably more uh, common today than the old school funerals that you and I can think of as our, in, in, in the younger days. You know, I have attended and performed many types over the years. Some have been joyous occasions with family and friends that are shedding tears of sorrow and joy, filled with laughter, recounting their favorite memories and moments of their loved ones. However, I have had others that are filled with moments of intense despair, with family and friends crying, crying and wailing as if there was no hope at the loss of their loved ones. Some of you are old enough to remember the funeral procession of President John F. Kennedy or Bobby, uh, Bobby Kennedy or Martin Luther King, or you've seen him on TV where it's just this large procession and people are just weeping and some are just remembering all the wonderful things they do. People lined up for miles around to pay their respects. We see it with today when a police officer or a firefighter dies in the line of duty as they would take their, their apparatuses and their cars and follow in a long procession down the freeways as their brothers and sisters line the highways and bridges as they're transported to their final resting place. Now, I've experienced that type of outpouring of love and respect personally uh, twice. Once with a childhood friend, I remember when he passed away, he was a young man. Uh, I can't remember how old. Do you remember how old um, Hant was? Um, uh, how old was he? Do you remember? He was early 30s. I can't remember how many children he had, Ron Hant. And um, we went, yeah, 33. And we went, and he had three kids, I think, something of that nature. And he died very, very young uh, from his work. He worked in a job that uh, shredded his lungs. He would breathe in little pieces of metal. Um, but I remember going to the church there, Don and I, and we hadn't seen him in some times. We knew the family, we were family friends. But as we parked there, I am not kidding that there was almost a quarter of a mile, if not longer, line outside of the church of people who had gathered to just walk by to see the casket. I think it took us well over an hour to get through the receiving line. And then the other one is, is uh, one I've mentioned before is my brother Steve. He was, uh, uh, he had, he was a uh, founder of an international addiction ministry. And when he passed away, he passed away at 45 on his way to preach at a conference, uh, died a block from his home, massive heart attack. Uh, that morning, he had taken family pictures with him and his five children. Many of you have met Channing. He was here for a while. Many of you know him. Um, and I remember his, the outpouring of love for him was amazing. 
And uh, of course, he was in Illinois. We're here. We kept in contact and things. And like I go back home. And the church is a big church that he went to. I could hold about a thousand people or so, but it was not big enough to contain everyone. They actually had to rent out what you and I call the pond or the Honda Center. They had to rent that out to have everyone who came from all across the country to share their love and, and respect for him. It was a moving thing to see uh, when someone dies, people want to share their love and respect. But in today's passage, Luke records the burial of Jesus. Now, if you and I would expect anyone who would have a lot of people there who would be weeping or crying or things of that, you would think, oh, yes, Jesus would have that. However, as you and I read this in Luke 23, 50 through 56 or the other gospel accounts, there's no fanfare. There's no moving speeches about who he was and how he affected their life. There's no wonderful stories from people sharing how Jesus impacted their lives. No, the burial of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world was private. It was quick and quiet affair. Consider that Peter's mother-in-law, the one whom he healed, was not there. The little girl that Jesus raised from the dead was not there to share her testimony. The ones who were, who were uh, released from demonic powers were not there to praise Jesus. The woman who was afflicted with the blood disorder for years was not there. Not one of the 5,000 who were fed that one day were there. The deaf and the dumb man who were healed were not there, nor were the blind men. Jesus was buried privately, quickly, and quietly in a borrowed tomb by a few secret followers. The narrative moves here as we look at Luke 23, moves to a somber interlude as as Luke recounts the burial of Christ. Remember, Jesus has prophesied three times already that he was going to die, he was going to be buried, and he was going to be resurrected over three times. Luke recounts the eyewitness accounts of these events to record that, to show that Jesus was the Messiah, but also to give the evidence that Jesus did die. And that he was buried and that he rose from the dead as Jesus said he would. Now, we had learned last week that in his life and his ministry to death, Jesus accomplished our salvation in two ways. Remember that? The active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ's passive obedience, him allowing himself to be tortured and be crucified, grants us forgiveness of sin. But you and I need more than just forgiveness of sins. We needed to be made right with God. We needed to have God's favor. And that's what his active obedience did. It earns our righteousness. We must remember that though it might have been Judas who betrayed Jesus, even though it was the religious leaders who prompted the crowd to call for the death of Christ, and even though it was Pilate who gave the death sentence and the Roman soldiers who administered the punishment, the torture to Christ, man did not kill Jesus. Let me get that again. We have to understand this. Man did not kill Jesus. In John chapter 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. In this, we find that Jesus willingly gave up his life in order that you and I may be redeemed, be reconciled with God, be made right with God. Jesus was humiliated that we might receive honor as children of God. He suffered so that you and I may find salvation. 
for God's glory, man's good, Jesus died. Jesus is the merciful Savior that we looked at last week. As the Father sends his Son, Jesus takes our place, our substitute. Jesus suffered in our place. He was mocked in our place. He was crucified in our place, satisfying both the justice of God while also demonstrating his love. Now, our passage today, as we come and close out Matthew or Luke chapter 23, our passage serves as a testimony to the fact that Jesus truly died. Typically, when we speak of Jesus and his passion, the last moments of his life, we, we, we recount all the things from Palm Sunday until the day that he's arrested. We think of his betrayal, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. We think of the torture he went on. We talk about the crucifixion and then the fact that he died. And then typically, we just kind of skip over the burial and move right to the resurrection, to the, you know, the crescendo of all things. But it's important for us to understand that Christ was buried. It's not that he died and then he was resurrected. There's a theological emphasis and importance in the doctrine of the fact that Christ also was buried. To prove his point that Jesus was buried, Luke includes several eyewitness accounts that include several women and a courageous religious leader along with the preparations of Jesus' body. So let's pray. Father, give us wisdom and discernment as we consider the burial of Christ. Many times uh, an action that we don't think much of. Uh, how does the fact that Christ was buried, what does that mean to us, you know, 1,993 years later? What, what, what effect does it have on us? But Father, let us consider these important facts. For it is true, this is what Scripture prophesied and Jesus fulfilled. And in it, we find that there is, there is wonderful truth for us to embrace and a wonderful truth for us to live out. So be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, first, <clears throat> let's consider the eyewitness accounts of his burial. Remember, Luke is like a historian here. He's a, he's a reporter. He's been talking to people for several years, trying to understand about the life and ministry of Jesus. Tell me, what did you see? What did you hear? What did it smell? You know, all the things, you know, the how, when, what, and where of, of journalism, so to speak. And in here, he's been collecting these things so that he could give certainty to Theophilus, his Gentile Greek readers, that they may know those who did not see the events, experience the events of Christ, so that they may have certainty that they actually happened as said. So he's collecting these eyewitness accounts. And what we see is that there were some people that did see Jesus buried. He records that the followers of Jesus actually witnessed the crucifixion. They witnessed the death and also the burial, but from a distance. Now, we're not going to go in order here, but you'll see here on the monitor in Luke chapter 23. We're going to go to verse 55 first. We see that the women who had came with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments for his body. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, though not mentioned in Luke, Luke's account of the gospel, what the other gospels share is that among the women who were following Jesus at the distance was Mary Magdalene. You might remember her. She was the one that was who her seven demons were cast out of. There was Mary, the mother of James, the younger, uh, the younger or the less. And we also see Salome, mother of James and John. Most likely this was the mother or the sister of Mary. In other words, Jesus' aunt. And possibly 
his mother Mary, according to John's gospel. We know that she was there at the crucifixion. Whether or not she followed at a distance, we're not as sure. Now, as you may recall, the disciples, except John the disciple, had all scattered and deserted Jesus. Only John stood near and, and stayed with Mary and watched during the whole time. Only these three women were strong enough, courageous enough to stay along with John. They had followed Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came down from Galilee. As you remember our story in Jesus' journey to, to Jerusalem, he started from Galilee and he would stop along the way. And there was a large crowd that would follow him to see what would happen in Jerusalem. They were his financial supporters of his ministry. These women had become eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus was truly buried as they marked the place where he was buried. They recognized and said, okay, there is where his body is at. It would be these women who would come three days later on a Sunday to find the tomb empty. Secondly, we read of the timing of the burial. That's in verse 54. It says it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So the Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown. It's not a, necessarily a time as you and I in the Western world count time. It would just, as the sun's going down, that's the beginning of their Sabbath. And it would be a Friday to Saturday night when the sun would go down. Now, Jesus, we had already read last week, gave up his life voluntarily. No one took it, but he gave up his life at 3 p.m. on that Friday afternoon, which gives them only about two or three hours to bury him. It was customary to bury the body before sundown, before the Sabbath, which began at that sundown on Friday. It was part of the law that was actually handed down by God through Moses. In Deuteronomy 21, I believe I might have it here on the monitor, uh, God had commanded Moses that if a man has committed a crime that was punishable by death and that he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. And that's a, another fulfillment of scripture as Jesus would be uh, cursed by God by, for being hanged on our, on our behalf. He goes on to say, you shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, this is different than the Romans. When the Roman custom was to just let the body hang there on the cross until it rotted away. And they did this as a warning. Do not rebel against Rome. Remember, and that's why they put Jesus on the cross, is they accused him of treason. That was what he was guilty of was treason, being a rebellious, going against uh, Caesar. So typically they would just let him be there and just rot and let the birds just eat them away as a warning to all those who would pass in and out of Jerusalem. Dr. Schreiner points out that physical uh, burial, though, is important to the Jews. The crucified were often thrown into common graves or torn apart by animals. Now, thirdly, not only the timing, but thirdly, Luke records the request for the body of Christ in verse 50. So now we come to the meat of the story here in Luke. He goes on in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So what you and I see at this moment, just take a moment. In this passage, we are, are now introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. We have not heard of him until this moment. 
He is described by Luke in his eyewitness accounts as a rich man or a man of means. He had his own private tomb, typically which would be a cave. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, of the council. He was a righteous man who's described as looking for the kingdom of God. And you might remember that was like Simeon and Anna from the birth of Christ, where Simeon and Anna were looking for the kingdom of God. He was a secret disciple of Jesus because of his fear. Even though he was one of the council members, Sanhedrin, he was fearful of letting people know, similar to probably Nicodemus. He did not take part in the trial of Jesus, or at least he did not consent to the fact that Jesus would be crucified. And he, was, and he buried Jesus in his own private tomb. None of the Gospels record any previous interactions between Joseph and Jesus, yet Luke tells us that he exhibited both courage and care with the body of Christ. And let's continue. I think 52 is up there. It says that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. I want to consider for just a few moments just the boldness of Joseph of Arimathea. First, as we're going to look at his boldness, his courage, we see that he solicits a pilot for the body of Jesus. He requests that. Without that request, Jesus most likely would have been buried as a common criminal in an unmarked grave or just left to die on the cross fully and just to rot away. Ironically, this is what happened to Judas the betrayer. It was that 30 pieces of silver that would go to buy such a grave. Not saying that's where Jesus was buried, but that would typically where Jesus would have been buried as a common criminal. It was an irregular request in the fact that Joseph was not a family member. Jesus' family, as we see here, did not request the body, most likely because other than his mother, his brothers had not accompanied him to Jerusalem. Remember that Jesus' brothers and sisters thought he was out of his mind. Mark 3.21 says that when his family heard about Jesus and his ministry, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They didn't know what to make out of Jesus. And though Mary, it seems, traveled uh, uh, from Galilee with Jesus to Jerusalem, his mother was there. She would have been too distraught and far from home to make any type of funeral arrangements for her son. But what we see here is what surprises Pilate and the other Gospels is that Jesus is already dead. And we referred a little bit of that to last week. Typically, crucifixion lasted days or or lasted uh, days, not just hours. They would be up there for a long time until they tired out so much that they would die of suffocation. As you might recall, the soldiers had to break the legs of the two thieves to hasten their death. Breaking their legs would make it so they could not push up to take breath or to release it, to release their air. But they found Jesus already dead. But so he goes and requests the body. But then we see also in that passage is that he supervises the preparation of the body of Christ. He does as a rich man and man's a means. He could have said, hey, servants, take care of this. And he probably had servants that helped him. But what we see is he takes care with the body of Christ. John tells us that in his gospel that Nicodemus assisted uh, Joseph in preparing Jesus' body for for burial. 
As a rich man, he most likely supervised his servants in getting Jesus' body ready for the funeral, taking it off the cross, carrying it the short distance to the tomb, and getting it ready with the spices, cleaning the body off, and wrapping it in linen. Luke tells us that Joseph took great care of Christ's body as if he were a family member. But then we see he supplies also the tomb for the burial. Fortunately, his tomb was near where Christ was crucified. Scripture informs us that the tomb belonged to Joseph. And as a rich man, he could afford a special private place for him and his family to be interned. Caves were typically used for that purpose, hence why you would see there's an opening and there would be a stone rolled away. Though Luke doesn't really give us that information. But he does inform his readers, as us as well, that Jesus was the first person to be laid to rest in that tomb. Dr. Schreiner notes here in the monitor is that the details regarding Jesus' burial is important. Now, typically we just read past it, but he says it's actually important because the place of his burial is established publicly. His body could not be confused with any other since his is the only one to ever have been placed in the tomb. In other words, when you went and saw nobody, you could say, well, it was somebody else that was in there. No, he was the only one in there. The activity takes place late on Friday, just as the Sabbath is beginning, when everything would be done. No Jew would ever be on the Sabbath out there trying to steal a body or do some type of hoax. Joseph's actions, as you and I read this, we need to remember that his actions, his loving actions towards Jesus' body came at a great risk to him. It shows his allegiance and identity as a follower of Jesus. Again, not only to the Roman soldiers who just crucified Jesus, but also to the Sanhedrin, to the ones who just found Jesus guilty. Joseph went to much personal cost and, and risk in requesting the body of Christ. It was his tomb that he used, as well as this would have identified him as a disciple of Jesus to the council, putting his own life in jeopardy. Now, as we consider this passage, we need to say, well, what is this passage teaching us? What is the spiritual truth? What are the promises? Are there any commands in here for you and I to take and then to help us in our life and in our own faith? Well, Luke records these events that or these events as evidence that Jesus died and was buried. It was not enough for Jesus just to suffer and bear the humiliation of the cross and rejection. In other words, it wasn't enough for him just to bleed a little bit and then say, okay, okay, that's enough. Let me down, let me down, and then God's wrath is averted. A writer from Ligonier Ministry writes that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us insight into the theological significance of this statement, Jesus was buried. And that's the statement that you and I, not that he died, but he was buried. According to this catechism, Jesus' burial testifies that he really died. Now, that seems like, wow, that's not really a big thing, but it is. Jesus truly died. Burial is the final act. This testimony to the actual death of the Savior is important given all that we have said about the curse of God and the satisfaction of God's wrath. If there was any doubt that Jesus really had died, there would be doubt as to whether or not the Father had actually meted out his wrath on Christ. Did the Father finally give in and say that was enough? 
I mean, you and I know if our children disobey, if, if it comes to a point where our children need uh, uh, um, some punishment or discipline, I should say, there's a point where you and I probably would say, that's enough, right? You can only go so far in disciplining your children before the tears and the looks and the cries just melt your heart. So some would say, well, God loved the, loved the son so much, as scripture tells us, that, Jesus, that the father could not have actually killed Jesus. He only went so far. But you and I need to recognize that Jesus' suffering and humiliation went to the grave, not just to a point of suffering a little bit on the cross. It goes on to say, I've got this quote up there. Death is the sentence pronounced on sinners. And death is required for atonement. If you've been here for any time, a length of time, you know that's true. But he goes on, if Jesus had not died, we would have no assurance that the demands of God's law were met in Christ. And there would be no foundation for believing we are at peace with the Father unless Jesus had truly died. The account of Jesus' burial in our passage today, then, is more than just a record of historical fact. Christ's burial proved that he truly died and that he endured the curse for his people. As you and I could just, uh, common, common sense tells us that we do not bury live people. Typically, we at least try not to. Now, you might remember the stories from the days of old, before modern medicine and the ways in which we can tell someone has died, that they would put little bells in coffins. So if someone really hadn't died and they woke up, they could ring the bell and let people know I'm alive. You know, Could you imagine something of that nature? Or every once in a while you hear about someone who was pronounced dead, and there they are on the table at the coroner's office, and they wake up and they truly weren't dead. But in this case, Luke is recounting the burial of Christ to prove that Jesus truly died. The burial is part of God's plan. It is evidence that Jesus truly was dead. Now, they also go on to say that the accounts of Jesus' burial also has value for defending our faith. So as, like the Muslims believe that Jesus never died on the cross, but was taken up to heaven before he died. Some members of the Jesus Seminar, a terrible group that uses colored rocks to, to, to point out what they believe that the, the Gospels are true or not, they teach that scavenging dogs ate Jesus' corpse. If that's the case, how could he ever rise from the dead bodily? And these positions are completely groundless for when the sources written the closest or the soonest after Jesus' ministry was completed, the four Gospels, all agree that Jesus really died and that Joseph of Arimathea buried him. Finally, Matthew Henry points out that there may be more significance to Jesus' burial in a garden tomb than we might see at first glance. He writes this, and consider this, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis, death and the grave first received their power when our first parents rebelled against Christ. And now in a garden, they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed. Speaking of uh, the uh, grave and the death. They are now conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began his passion. And from a garden, he would rise again and begin his exaltation. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
want to take a moment to look at this belief that Jesus or the importance that Jesus was buried. This belief that Christ died and was buried was actually the foundation of the early church. In this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verse 3, we read an early catechism that was written about Apostle Paul about what they believed of Jesus. He says, Paul writes, For I delivered unto you, speaking to the church of Corinth, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And then you see the next one, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Now, you and I would probably not think anything less if that verse said he died for our sins in accordance with scripture and was raised on the third day. You and I would not skip a beat. But he was buried is very important for the foundation of our faith because it proves that Jesus truly died. Now, there are some questions, and as we talked about the Muslims and others, the Jesus Seminary, uh, Seminar, there are many believe that Jesus didn't really die. Now, you see the Muslims, they believe that when Jesus said it is finished, then he, he just, he went up to heaven and then he didn't really die or his, his body might have, but he really didn't. Others, as the Jesus Seminar, believe, oh, Jesus was died just like a regular criminal. But there is one major theory that finds itself finding ground and traction, it seems, every generation. It's called the swoon theory. That's a swoon as you think of someone, you know, kind of coming in and out of conscience. This states that Jesus was not actually dead when he was removed from the cross. Rather, he had fallen into a coma-like state. And there are many who would say that, that Jesus was, it was an elaborate hoax that Jesus just fainted and his people took him down and said, see, he's he's not really, or he died, but he really wasn't. And then they took him away and healed him. And so on the third day, he was able then to walk up again. However, to think of that, that great hoax, you would have to consider and concede to two things. One is the incompetency of the Roman soldiers. Now you have to think of that. These Roman soldiers, they had crucified quite a few people. These were hardened men. They're not going to be bought by some Jewish people who say, well, let's do a hoax here. But also you have to remember that not Jesus' legs were not broken. You have to remember there was a spear thrown into his side to prove that he was truly dead. But then you'd also have to think of and consider that if the swoon theory was true, if Jesus truly didn't die, he just went into a coma, he went to, he fainted, is that you would have to think that these frightened and scared disciples of Jesus designed an elaborate hoax and fooled everyone for 2,000 plus years, including those people who followed him. But then you'd have to think of the stupidity of the disciples who each and every one other than John died a martyr's death proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Pastor James Boyce, he writes, there are several reasons why the New Testament stresses the burial of Christ. Number one, again, the burial proves that Jesus was really dead. Again, we do not bury people who have fainted and fainted, people who are in a coma, people who are comatose. We just do that. If Jesus had not been buried or had not been buried as he was, 
after the centurion had certified to Pilate that Jesus was truly dead, if, if Joseph Arminia had not had done that, then you and I could be just be left unaware of really what is the truth. Secondly, the details of the burial fulfill scripture. The most obvious passage is Isaiah 53, 9, where the prophet says that he, speaking of the Messiah, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had declared that he would be crucified, that he would die, and that he would be buried, and then resurrection, resurrected. But then also, you and I need to understand is the burial has theological significance. It's more than just a historical fact. There is something there to strengthen our faith. And this point is not always so obvious, but strikes us when we study what is said about the grave in the Old Testament and about the burial of Jesus in the New, mostly by Paul. When you read the Old Testament, it speaks of the grave with, 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 with great dread. Uh, Genesis says, in mourning, I will go down to the grave. In 2 Samuel, it says, the cords of the grave coiled around me. People understand that when it's buried, it's final. Often the word translated grave in our Bibles is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, which has overtones of hell, as in Psalms when it says the anguish of the grave. As you consider, the grave is not just it. There's life after the grave. Or in Job, which he calls Sheol or the grave, the land of gloom and deep shadows. To say that Jesus not only died, but also was buried in the grave means that Jesus descended as low as he could go in order to raise us up to heaven. One pastor says Jesus endured not only the pain and suffering and the curse of death, but even the terror of the grave, the finality of it, so that he could save his people from this forever. Going back to Dr. James Boyce, he says, but there's more. He says in Romans, Paul speaks of Christians of have been buried with Jesus in his death. What in the world does that mean? Being buried with Jesus on his death. Just as they are raised with him in his resurrection. He does this while explaining while believers cannot continue living in a life of sin, practicing sin after coming to Christ. For example, Paul writes, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of his father, we too may live a new life. Now, when theologians work out these parallels of Christ being buried and us being buried, they have little trouble showing how we have been crucified with Christ, we have been raised to walk with him, or made to ascend into heaven with him when he comes again. But they do have trouble many times as you and I think of the burial. If you and I think of the burial, it's like, okay, how does that really relate to us theologically? How can we be said to be buried with Christ? There is no sense in which you and I are laid down in a grave with dirt thrown over us. What does this add that's not already covered by our death to sin? I suggest he writes that the reason the burial is an important step even beyond the death of Christ is that burial puts the decrease or the deceased person out of this world permanently. And I want you to consider that. That's why you and I weep 
when someone we love is, is dead and buried. Even when we know that they had a profession of faith and we truly trust that they are in heaven, there's still this thing that we know that we are now separated from them. And there's something about the funeral, because you always think, well, wait, the memorial and funeral is days, sometimes weeks after death. Why are you still now crying? There's something about the whole thing in which we're putting them in there that's so final. We know that it's certain. There's only one that's come back, risen from the grave on his own power, Jesus Christ. You and I have no hope that when we're dead, that we will rise to walk on this earth in the same way that you and I think of until Christ comes. See, a corpse is dead to life. But there is a sense in which it can be still said to be in life as long as it is around. When it's placed in the ground and covered with the earth, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. This is why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of being removed from the rule of sin. Remember, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. We have been delivered from the power of sin. We need to recognize that we've been removed from that rule of sin and death to the rule of Christ. He emphasizes this with speaking of burial. He is intensifying what he's saying about our death to sin. We have died to sin. He says, you have not only died to sin, but you have been buried to it. In other words, it no longer has any control, any life, any rule over us. You and I are not, in the grave, you are not ruled by the time, right? You're, you're not there looking at someone else's agenda. Uh, taxes are finally over for you, not for your inheritors, but for those that, uh, but, those, but for you yourself. And so that's what he's trying to make us understand, is that when you're buried, nothing has any rule over you any longer, And you and I need to consider ourselves. And I think that's what's struggling with many, many Christians. We say, yes, we have died. You know, we think of that verse, um, uh, take up yourself, or no, uh, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, right, and follow Christ, because we've died to sin. But, But to be honest, we as Christians are not considering ourselves buried to sin. We keep pulling ourselves out of the grave, And bringing ourselves into that life. And enjoying that sin, that pet sin, right? That one way in which you're not satisfied with the promises of God. But I'm here to share with you that you and I need to understand that we are buried. We have no ties to this world any longer. Jesus says we're no longer of this world. And so you and I need to recognize that when it's saying that he was buried, there is a purpose for that. There's a a, a word picture for you and I to remember when, when Satan is trying to tempt you and pull you and draw you away from God. I'm dead, man. I'm buried. You have no control over me. He goes on to write, to go back to sin, once you have been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. It's like weekend at Bernie's. I shouldn't have said that. I was going to put that in my notes, but I didn't, but here it is. I don't know if you know the movie Weekend at Bernie's. I don't recommend it. It's an old story of boss dies, and so two, two co-workers, they carry him around. He's flopping all over. That's how you and I are. We're like a bunch of flopping Christians. As R.C. Sproul once said, what's wrong with you people? 
going back to Dr. Boyce, he says, when we have been baptized, or when we baptize those that have denied themselves and taken up their cross, those who have trusted Christ, those that have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, amen, we say they're buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Hence why baptism for us is you're raised, you die, you're buried, you're raised to walk in new life. So the question goes, well, did Jesus go to hell? That's the many questions have. And Landon took us through this actually back in January in the Apostles' Creed. Most iterations of the Apostles' Creed say this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And we agree with that. And then it goes on to say he descended into hell. So did Jesus, when he died, when he was buried, did he go into hell? I would say no. That has been the decision of our church. And you, when we did the Apostle Creed, we did take out that part of the creed. It's not original to the creed as far as we could see. It is something that was added over the years. And there are some scriptures that seem to think or seem to point that Jesus himself had to go through hell. However... We're reading Luke chapter 23, that when one of the thieves repented and said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom, Jesus said what? Truly, truly, I say what? Today you will be with me in paradise. A few verses later, Jesus calls out saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. And then Peter preaching to the crowd reminds them of the psalm that says of the messianic promise that you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. So did Jesus go to hell? Was Jesus there for those three days? We do not believe so. Just in the fact what Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise, shows us that Jesus went to, went to the Father soon. He did not go into hell. Unfortunately for you, I shouldn't say unfortunately, that's a bad term. But for you and I, there's probably more questions than answers at this point. For scripture really does not give us much information between the time of his death and his burial and his resurrection. All we know that his body was buried and we believe that his soul went into heaven. Now, what do we do with that? Well, for this morning... Here's what I want you to do with that phrase, he was buried. You and I can approach this passage just as the readers of Luke's original readers did by having assurance that Christ has fully provided all that God has required from us. The penalty of sin was furnished. The wrath of God was satisfied. The power of Satan was destroyed along with the promise of his coming resurrection. Next year, you and I will finish Luke's gospel with a resurrection and ascension of Christ. We will not finish Luke this year. But until then, let us find a greater hope, which is a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. May we find a stronger faith, a confident trust in the person and character of God, and then a deeper love, which is a confident assurance of God's acceptance that radiates throughout this Christmas season and New Year to the glory of God and for our good. Jesus' death and burial sets us up for the glorious news of his resurrection. So may that give you the strength for these next few weeks as we look forward to what Jesus is doing in our lives. Amen? Amen. 
their head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up, along with Randy for our... for our pastor's prayer. And as always, I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider what this passage is teaching. Why is the burial of Jesus so important? It really could have been a fact. You and I would just assumed that that was happened by just skipping that part. But it's very important for our lives. There's a significance, not only in our theological knowledge, but also for things that you and I are to know, to do, and to be. And so with that, would you just take a moment to pray and then ask the Holy Spirit, how should I respond to the fact that Jesus was buried and in like way, we are buried as well? And then respond to however the Holy Spirit may be working in your life, again, for his glory and your good. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.